You may be seated this morning. And of course, we are going to continue in our systematic study through Romans. So we'll be in the eighth chapter, the book of Romans in the New Testament. If you'll turn to chapter eight, we left off at verse 31. And that's where we're going to pick it up again here this morning. So if you need a Bible, John has some in his hand and uh, as he's in the back. If you're towards the front, there's some on the front platform. We want you to read God's word with us. We want you to study God's word with us uh, this morning as you open up your Bibles and as we open it up to Romans chapter 8. As we're going to finish this chapter, we'll be halfway through the book of Romans when we do. But for this morning, going through the first eight chapters of Romans, that Paul the Apostle, as he is writing to the Christians in Rome from the city of Corinth, he puts pen to parchment. Always keep in mind that as he's doing that, that he is moved by the Holy Spirit of God to write these things down. And he has explained to them, and it's for us today, the truths and the precepts concerning our justification, that is our salvation, and also our sanctification. And that's what we have discovered over the last several weeks in our study of this epistle called Romans. Paul has declared to us that we are saved by the work of the Spirit in our lives. In other words, the Holy Spirit drawing us to him, the Holy Spirit testifying to us the gospel message is true. And you recall that it is Paul the Apostle that laid out the case that every single one of us, that we need the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Because we have all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So that has been declared quite extensively and clearly to us. And as we come to Christ in faith, we are born again by the Spirit of God. We are declared righteous, and we are justified by faith. It is not by the works of the law. You see, as we have seen very clearly, it has been explained to us that the law, what it does, the law is God's standard but it cannot save us. The law just points to the fact that we're guilty. It points to you and to me that we can't keep the law and that we need the Savior, Jesus Christ. In the book of Galatians, which is called the Many Romans, that Paul would emphasize that the purpose of the law is to be a schoolmaster or a tutor to drive us to Jesus Christ. So the law can't save us because we can't keep the law. Uh, it declares that we're guilty. But as we come to Jesus in faith, as we realize our need for him and what he did on Calvary's cross, and as we surrender our hearts to him, then we are justified. We are ones that have received salvation through faith. So the work of the Spirit coming to us uh, as in our salvation, but also uh, in chapters 6 through 8, that there is the work of the Spirit that continues in our lives, uh, in the believer's life, as we have seen. At the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling in me, then enables me to live a life for Jesus Christ. And that is what is called sanctification being set apart for him. And so we have looked at how the life of a believer is to be walking a life after the spirit. We're to be spiritually minded. We're not to be walking after the flesh in carnality, continuing in sin. In this section of sanctification, as chapter 6 began, 
Paul said, hey, we as believers, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, no, of course not, because we're dead to sin. And we identify with Christ in this newness of life. We yield our bodies over as the instrument of righteousness. We're not a slave to sin, but we are ones that desire to be slaves or that is bond servants to Jesus Christ unto righteousness. And then in chapter 7, not only are we dead to sin, but we are to be dead to the law so that we can be joined to another that is Jesus Christ. And you see, the law is God's standard, but the law cannot enable us to live a life after Jesus Christ. It just tells us that we don't live a life after Jesus Christ. The law doesn't give us the power to live for him. That's only a work of the Spirit. And so now as we walk in a life after this Holy Spirit, we are dead to the law of sin and death. And now there's a living law, and that is the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And a life in the spirit means that we put to death the deeds of the body. The spirit will testify to our spirit that we belong to him. We're his children. We don't have the spirit of fear, but we have this confidence and we have this peace as the Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we belong to him. We are his children. We are heirs of God, and we have the spirit of adoption as we cry out, Abba, Father. And so it's been so wonderful to look at this section of the book of Romans, which gives us just uh, confidence, and it gives us assurance of our relationship with him. And even though we go through sufferings and we go through difficulties, that we know that the Lord's going to see us through, that we know that the Holy Spirit is there when we don't even know how to pray when we have groanings inexpressible that the Holy Spirit is there to intercede for us according to the will of God. And when we don't know, we don't always know when we go through the sufferings and the difficulties of why, Lord, and what's going on, and this is so hard, we can know this, that as we covered last week, that he's working all things together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. That's something that we can be assured of. In eternity's view and perspective, he is working in our lives. And that is to be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. So that's where we have traveled so far in this glorious chapter of Romans. We want to finish this morning. And as we look at the final nine verses, beginning in verse 31, and uh, as we go through it, that we're going to see that Paul uses the word us or we some 13 times in these nine verses as we close the chapter. So let's read in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8, that what shall we say uh, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he, verse 32, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. So we left off last time at this verse, and as Paul, as he's writing to us, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, that's better translated, since God is for us, we know that he is for us, don't we? Because that's what we've covered over these eight chapters, seeing and discovering how God is for you and for me. And sometimes as Christians, we can get saved and we can tend to think, well, God saved me. But then over time, Lord, are you really for me? Are you really interested in me? Lord, am I valuable to you? We kind of think that, Lord, you must just kind of put up with me. Or that you must be so disappointed in me? Or you're bummed out about me? Or you hold me out at arm's length? 
And Paul begins this final beautiful conclusion of the chapter by saying God is for us. And what I hope and pray that you never forget because God's word declares it is that God is for you. Remember that Paul is writing this with confidence. He was one that before his conversion, that he persecuted the church very heavily. And Paul always marveled at the grace and forgiveness and the goodness and the love of our Lord. And oftentimes he would break out in praise in the epistles that he wrote when he would think about just the overwhelming goodness and continual love that the Lord showed to him and shows to us. Sometimes when we do go through loss or sufferings that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, we think that God is not for us. And the apostle has laid out the truth that we can know that there is a glory that awaits us and that he is working together for good. And what is that? To be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And then as we saw in verses 29 and 30 last week, whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, these he called, and these he called, he justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. And yes, there is a glory that awaits us. And so since God is for us, us, who can be against us? And Paul now begins to build on this truth. In verse 32, he says something absolutely amazing as we consider it, that he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That means you. That means you individually. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know, David would write, 3,000 years ago in Psalm 34, verse 10. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. David understood that. And as we see that he did not withheld his only son, he was delivered up for us all, for you personally, that he shall he not also freely give us all things. And the implication is all good things. Now, as we've talked in this chapter, we're joint heirs with Christ, verse 17. And you are valuable to the Lord. Do you realize that there are 17 elements that make up your body? They are the same 17 elements that are out there in the dirt that you park on out there. And if you were to break down the elements in our bodies, it would be worth probably about $4.50. The price of a Big Mac. And I want you to know this that you are more valuable than the dirt out there in the field. Sometimes we think I'm nothing but dirt. You're more valuable than the dirt that's out there. You're more valuable than a Big Mac. You are more valuable than all the Big Macs in the world. You are more valuable to him than all the money in the world. Because all the gold and silver could not redeem you, as Peter would write. And you are so valuable that he did not spare his own son for you. The son that was with the father from eternity past. The one who stood with the father and said, let us make man in our own image. And Paul writes, what do we say to these things? That God is for us. Who can be against us? And he is for us because he did not spare his own son for you and for me. He freely gave of his son and the son freely went to the cross and despised the shame. And whenever we kind of throw up our hands and we think, Lord, you don't really care for me. Or we kind of shrug our shoulders and doubt and in and, and frustration and all of this. I want you to remember these verses and verse 32 that he gave his son and would not did not withdraw him from you and to remember 
remember this, that on those shoulders in back of his, that he took a cat of nine tails and he took it for you. That ripped his skin off his back. That reduced him to raw hamburger. That as you throw up your hands in frustration, Lord, where are you? Do you care about me? Do, do you see what's going on in my life? That you would remember this. That he stretched out those hands and allowed those spikes to be driven through his hands and through his feet as he was pinned to that Roman gibbet and he hung between heaven and earth and he bled into the ground for you. Remember that he went to the cross for you and for me, bearing our shame upon him, bearing my sin, your sin, all because of his love, proving his love for us, that while you know, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God is telling us this morning that I gave you my son and I'm going to do what is good and best for you in your life now. And I can be confident in that because he's already given me the very best, his only begotten son. He did not withdraw his son or withhold his son from us. And won't he freely give us all things that is in eternity's perspective? So I don't have to doubt. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to fret. I don't have to be frustrated. Now, here's the thing. Now, God did not spare his own son, whom he loved. He would spare Abraham's son. The classic story of Genesis chapter 22. And God come to Abraham, testing Abraham. And Abraham, you take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice for me on the mount that I will show you. And Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And as Abraham was ready to plunge that knife, you know the story, into his only son, that the angel of the Lord, the Lord himself, called out to Abraham and said, Stop, stop, don't lay your hand on the lad, for I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love, Abraham, from me. And what makes that story so special and so unique is it would be 2,000 years later that the father watched his son go up that exact same hill to the top, Mount Moriah, that at that time in the Hebrew tongue was called Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of execution. And he did not spare his own son. There was no stopping the sacrifice. And he did it because he loves you. And here's the thing about Abraham. God already knew that Abraham loved God and feared God before he went up on that mountain with Isaac because God knows everything. But he allows us the privilege of discovering who he is, his goodness, his faithfulness. God knew that Abraham loved him. But what is being said to us there in Genesis 22, Abraham, I know that you fear me. I know that you love me. And we see it together. We're seeing it worked out together. And the thing about Abraham, when we look at his life, Isaac meant everything to him. Abraham was a very wealthy man. He was one that had hundreds of servants. We know that Abraham had over 300 servants. He had huge herds of animals. And he waited 25 years, him and Sarah, for the promise of having a son. And when they had Isaac, as they endured, as they knew that God would perform that which he promised, and Isaac was born, Isaac meant everything to him. They were so elated was Abraham and Sarah. He loved him, and he was willing to be obedient to 
the voice of the Lord and was willing to sacrifice him. Abraham was willing to let go of that one thing that meant so much to him. Yes, Lord, I will go to the mount and I will offer my son as a sacrifice. Even though he didn't have it figured out, he didn't understand it all. Lord, what exactly it is that you are doing? And my point is simply this. Can we be more like Abraham in that the thing that means the most to us on this earth is does not have preeminence to anything else in my life, to my relationship, to the things I have. It does not have preeminence over my love and devotion to my Heavenly Father. Relationships that we have and the things that we have in this life, they are important to us, right? I'm not saying they're not. Our spouse, our kids, our family, our businesses, our jobs, what we enjoy doing, those things are important to us. But may we be like Abraham, as God tested him, that he showed the Lord that those things aren't as important as walking with you and walking in obedience. And may we say, my house, my cars, my hobbies, my relationships, none of those things will have preeminence over my relationship with you, Father. And I believe that God will bless us freely with all kinds of good things. But if it doesn't happen, if we don't receive it, if he says no to us, then it must not be good for us. At least at this point... Maybe it will distract us away from him, walking with him and enjoying him and knowing him. So the Lord will keep us from those things that are not good for us in eternity's perspective, in the spiritual realm, to know him and to be conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. That's his desire in eternity's perspective. And sometimes as we go to the Lord, we can give him our you know, supplications or requests. Here's my desire, Lord. And it's taught so much in the church today. Lord, give me this thing. Lord, I want to be wealthy. Listen, the Lord can make you wealthy. And if he's blessed you and you have, you know, to where the Lord's blessed you abundantly, be thankful to him. But I think for a lot of us, Lord, I want to name it. I want to claim it. I want to be wealthy. We would take the goods and we would run. Perhaps that promotion at work, Lord, man, it would be so good. But perhaps he knows that it will take you away from him, that, that you'll get so distracted by it, that you'll be so busy by it. I can tell the Lord, Lord, I would love to have that cabin up in the mountains. You know, up in the Wind River and have that cabin. And I can go there during the week. And would you realize the anointed messages that I can come up with? They would be so anointed. And I can come back, Lord, and, and you know, really bless the congregation. And, and the Lord would say, Jeff, you have no business being up there because I know you. And I'll know that you'll be stomping around the woods and you'll be looking for that favorite fishing hole and all of that. And it can end up being a distraction away from him. My point is that God will keep us in a place where we stay close to him and won't be distracted. He may say no. He may say yes. He may say wait. Or he might say that I got something better for you. And if it is good for you at the time, he will give it to you freely. David understood that in Psalm 34. If he sees it's not good for you, 
then he won't give it to you. And we can be thankful for that. There are things that I pleaded with the Lord. Lord, if I can just have this thing, if I can just, you know, here's my request. Here's my desire. It's so important to me. And the Lord said no. And I can look back on it and I can say, thank you, Lord. Because I know that wouldn't have been good. Or you had something better for me. Or it was not the right time. So he did not spare his own son. He will freely give us all things. Jesus said, first, seek the king of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you. So when I don't get that thing, and I don't get my cabin up in the mountains, whatever you know may not come my way, I don't have to be grumping, I don't have to be murmuring, I don't have to be griping, wondering why doesn't God care? Uh, aren't I important to you, Lord? I can just simply rest in the fact that God is for me, and his you know, he wants the best for me. And that is the man or woman of faith. Not, again, this name and claim it nonsense. But rather, Lord, I trust you that you will give me freely what is best for me in any area of my life, in all area of my lives. I, I wait for you. I rest in you. And I know that I will see the faithfulness that comes from you. And we can rejoice in it. In verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we know uh, who desires to condemn us, and that is Satan. In the book of Revelation, when we get to chapter 12, verse 10, it's going to tell us that Satan, that he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. That's what Satan does. Look at Jeff. Look at his sin. Look how he's failed. Look what he did in the past. He's such a loser. That's what he does day and night. And it's very much illustrated for us when you go to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Many of you know this. In chapter 3, the prophet has a vision of Joshua, not Joshua of Jericho fame, but Joshua the high priest at that time. And he's standing before the Lord, and he's in filthy garments. Now, being the high priest to the people, his garments would be impressive. The high priestly garments. Look at Joshua the high priest. He's such a holy man. He's such a righteous man. But it illustrates as he's standing before the Lord that what Isaiah chapter 64 declares, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. None is righteous. So there is Joshua standing before the Lord in those filthy rags, and there is Satan accusing him. So the Lord says, you know, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, and said, is this not the brand plucked from the fire? And the Lord would say, change Joshua's garments and, and give, take away those filthy garments. And see, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. It is a beautiful, wonderful picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has plucked us out of the fire of damnation. He's clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Paul has already declared in chapter 7 of Romans that in our flesh is no good thing, that the law will not justify you because you can't keep the law. So Satan comes along and he condemns us. Now keep in mind the Holy Spirit comes along and he convicts us. There's a big difference in the two. Satan condemns us. He will do it to push you away from the Lord. 
making you think as he, he messes with your head that you're no good. Look what you've done in the past. God doesn't really love you. He isn't really going to forgive you. You're such a wretch. You know, you're a spiritual waste and all this. And it gets to the point where I've seen Christians that say, why should I go to church? Why should I pray? Why should I fellowship? You know, why should I read my Bible? And there are people that just end up staying home because of Satan that constantly condemns them day and night. Now, the Holy Spirit will convict us and listen. Always remember this. It's never to push you away from him. It's to draw you to him, to the Father. We realize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself said that I did not come to condemn the world, but the world through me might be saved. He wants to draw you to himself. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful thing because he loves us and he doesn't want us to continue in sin and to get hurt and be in bondage and to be in darkness and to be deceived. And it is always so that we will come to him. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam sinned in the garden, that here was Adam, that before that he had walked with God in the cool of the day, that he was naked but not ashamed. It was paradise. There was no sin. And when he sinned, what did Adam do? He hid from God. And God's going, Adam, where are you? Now, God knew where Adam was. But he's saying, Adam, where are you? I was naked. I was ashamed and I hid from you, God. And the question that God asks you and me on this morning, on this day, is where are you? Where are you? The work of the Father right now is, where are you right now? Maybe perhaps there have been those who have come through the services this morning. Maybe even someone here today at this service. And you've said, Father, I've been away from you. And I've been hiding from you. And I feel naked and ashamed. And he desires for you to come to him. Yes, he brings us correction. He instructs us. He tells us to repent when there's sin and carnality in our lives. Remember, repentance is a wonderful word. It doesn't mean that you keep going the direction you're going. It means you turn direction and turn to him to be able to do that. He wants to guide us. He never wants to push us away. And he's there ready and calling us to come. And as we sit in this place this morning, he would say to you, where are you right now? And just receive me. Come to me. And yield yourself to me. It is Jesus that justifies and he's there to intercede for us. Now in verse 27, we saw that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Now in verse 34, Jesus, he also makes intercession for us. That's a pretty good tag team. There is no one that can condemn us. Christ died for me on Calvary's cross. He rose again. He's at the right hand of the, of the Father making intercession for us. So you can kind of follow what Paul is saying here in this last section of, of chapter 8. That no one has the authority to accuse us. Satan surely doesn't have the authority to condemn us. It is only Jesus that has been given authority to judge and condemn mankind. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 verse 22. For the Father judges no one but has committed all 
all judgment to the Son. So to the believer, those of us in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Jesus is our judge, but he took the judgment for you and me on the cross. He's our advocate. He's our defense attorney, as 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us. He is our Savior, and he would never condemn those who he died for. So as his children that cry out, Abba, Father, the spirit of adoption. We don't have to be afraid of him. We don't have to avoid him. We don't have to run from him. We don't have to hide from him. And it's so wonder that Jesus said at the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I paid the price. Our salvation and our confidence is in him. That Christ died for me. And now I can come into this loving, enjoyable relationship with the Father because of his love for me that was proved to me as he died for me, his son on the cross. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am justified. I will be glorified. My confidence is in him. My confidence is not in the fact that I was baptized. My confidence is not in I was dedicated as a baby. My confidence is not in I was confirmed in the church or I tied to the church or I go to church. As good as those things can be, I keep this one declaration and that is Christ died for me. And that's why Paul would say to the Corinthians when he first came to them, that I came to you preaching nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He died for every one of my sins. So when Satan brings the accusation against me, laying out his case, you know, that the father turns to his son who intercedes, who's our advocate. And Jesus, who intercedes, our defense attorney, our advocate, stands up and says, I died for Jeff. I died for his sins. And Satan runs into that every single time. And it's the same with you. He wants to condemn you in your mind. You just say, listen, I'm going to lawyer up. I'm going to go to my defense attorney. You talk to him, my heavenly advocate, lawyer. And Satan knows that he's got a lost case every single time. So that's why Paul writes, who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us as God's child? No one. Because he died for me, Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And then in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In verse 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul, he's gone through the tribulations and distress and persecution. He went through all that and he writes this with confidence. When we go through these things, when we go through tribulation or distress or persecution or whatever the case may be, we can think, where is God's love? Love, Lord, do you love me? Have you removed your love from me? So we know that he doesn't condemn us, as Paul's emphasizing God's love for us, because we're in Christ. He has given us already the very best. His son who was delivered up for us, he will freely give us all good things now, and he will work for all things together for good for those who love him. And so wonder that Paul writes, yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that word conquer, uh, it means to have a you know, decisive victory in the midst of the battle. 
So in this last paragraph of Romans chapter 8, we learn that there's no separation from the love of God. Nothing can drive a wedge between God and his people, no matter how painful or how hard. And in verse 36, you notice that Paul, he quotes from Psalm 44. Now, Psalm 44 was written that God's people thought that God had forsaken them in their difficulty. For your sake, we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. But Paul writes it here to remind us, just as he told us in verse 18, that in life we will go through sufferings, we will go through difficulties, and the world and the enemy is going to come against us, try to condemn us. And these Christians 2,000 years ago were about ready to go through tremendous persecution and be martyred by Caesar Nero. And here Paul is reminding them, don't think that God's love is separated from you. And remember that you are more than conquerors and our victory isn't in ourselves and our strength and our power. We're lambs. You know, we want to be strong. We want to be tough. We're sheep. First service, I I was bringing out this illustration. We're sheep. We're lambs. Lambs are needy. They're defenseless. They're innocent animals. And I said, there's, there's no football team you know, has a mascot, the lambs, you know, uh, the sheep. And then I was corrected because apparently there's a high school that in Fort Collins that's the lambkins or something. And I think, really? Okay, they need to change that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we are. We're sheep. We're lambs. And, and we're needy. We need the Lord. So in all of the difficulties, rather than be separated from God's love, We're more than conquerors. We have victory. And it is through him that loved us that enables us to have victory. You know the famous story of of Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got tossed into the burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was so mad at them because they would not bow down to his statue that he, he gave the order, heat that furnace up seven times more than normal. I don't know if you can even do that. But he was so mad, and he tossed them in the top of the furnace, and he's down below looking in the doorway, and, and uh, he, he thought they were going to get all burnt up, and there Nebuchadnezzar is looking in. He says, wait a minute here. How many guys did we throw in? Well, three. Well, they're doing real well, and it looks like there's a fourth, and he's like the son of God. We have the Savior in those fiery times of our lives. And as we know that he is with us and we have the fellowship of his sufferings, that we can have a deep level of intimacy and fellowship with him. And he's with us. And I have discovered many times in my own life, in the fiery trials, I felt like the enemy is condemning me so much that he's thrown me into the fire, just the roast. But Jesus is there. He's there with me, and he's fellowshipping with me, and his love is not separated from me. And matter of fact, the only thing that is lost is those things that bind me up. Just as they came out, they didn't smell of smoke. They weren't burnt. Only the, the ropes that had them bound up were burned up. And the things that bind me up and put me in bondage, the things of the world and stuff, need to burn up. The the refiner's fire that we sing about and talk about, that the Lord will be faithful to us. And then others get to see the Lord, just as Nebuchadnezzar did. That he is with you and he's real. And Paul writes, I'm confident that we will never be separated from his love. 
And Paul's certain as we finish the chapter here, verse 38, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wonderful conclusion is that Paul is telling us that we can put the rest any thought that God does not love me or he will stop loving me, that he has left me and I am separated from him. The implication here is clear, that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I am persuaded, he writes, I have been convinced of it. No angel, no principality, no power, nothing that has been before or ever shall come. Things present, things to come, height, death, or any other created thing can separate you from God's love because his love is consistent. It is eternal. It is constant. It's immeasurable. It's undescribable. It is unconditional. And it is not based upon my Goodness, or because of my strength or my togetherness. It's because he is love and he's chosen to put his love upon me. And it will always be there and I will be linked to him and nothing will remove me from that. I belong to Jesus now and forever and so do you. And I can be sure of my relationship with him. And it's so wonder that Paul would write that if God is for us, then who can be against us? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this wonderful message here, this encouragement and assurance of your goodness and faithfulness and love for us. And as we look at this, remembering that, that the Father did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. That's us personally because of his love for us. He went to the cross that we might have hope that we might have salvation. That we can enjoy you and come in relationship with you, Father, only through Jesus Christ. So I do want to pray if there's anyone here that may be listening on live stream or later on the radio, that you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, that he's calling you to himself. He is your salvation. There is none other. He says to you, Come. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you come? He is your salvation. There's none other. And you can't save yourself. All of us have sinned and has separated us from God. That's what separated us is that sin. And Jesus says, come. I prove my love to you. I provided salvation and forgiveness through the cross. I rose from the grave. I'm alive. And he's there for us, for you and for me. So if you desire to be forgiven and have eternal life in relationship with the Father, will you give your life to Jesus right now? Come in faith and calling out to him. You can pray right where you are. Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me. You rose again. Forgive me. I am a sinner. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I do want to enjoy you and walk with you. To know you. I thank you for this new beginning. And help me to stay close to you all the days of my life. 
In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer sincerely, welcome to the family of God. You have a new beginning. Born again by the Spirit of God. And so as we have the prayer team come up in just a minute, will you tell them the decision you made? Because we want to pray for you and we want to encourage you. And continue to know him. Continue to learn the word. To go to him. It's a wonderful journey that you're on. Father, I pray for all of us that you would just, Lord, remind us of your love. That you give wisdom to those who need it. Who are confused or wondering. You give assurance to those who are doubting. That you give strength to those who are weak. Provide for those who have need. And Lord, that we would never let anything have preeminence over you in our lives. Knowing that you love us with a perfect love. So Father, bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.